Do you want to earn every penny of your wealth working incredibly hard as a doctor until you retire at an age decreed by the government? Or do you want to take some of that hard-earned wealth and use that money to work for you? Today's episode, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is investing. We actually recorded this episode right at the very start of the podcast, but we held off to releasing it until now because we wanted to get some of the more uh, basic subjects covered first, like paying the right amount of tax and spending less than you earn, getting a solid financial plan, getting some protection to protect your wealth and sorting out your pension. So we've covered all those subjects in previous episodes. And if you haven't listened to them, I'd probably recommend that you check those out after listening to this podcast. But as I said, investing is my favorite subject, I think, because it's a large part of why I'm no longer reliant on working extra shifts as a locum to pay the bills and make ends meet, and a large part of why I'm able to drop my kids off to school two days a week and pick them up at the end of the day. Uh, everybody's definition of success and wealth is different, but when I drop my kids off and pick them up at the end of the day, that makes me feel incredibly wealthy. And a large part of that is down to good financial management, which we've talked about in the previous episodes, and also investing. Part of the reason why I've been so excited to release this episode is, as I said, 10 years ago, I was fortunate enough that an advisor sat me down and took me through the basics of a good investing strategy. And I've definitely reaped the rewards of that over the last 10 years. But 10 years ago, investing wasn't that accessible and it was quite difficult to get started uh, especially for people like me who started off investing tiny amounts I actually remember when I was investing 25 50 pounds uh, a month because that was all I had I was paying down 85,000 pounds worth of student debt I wasn't getting any inheritance or any uh, leg ups it was all money that I'd earned and it was really hard to start with such small amounts but on today's podcast not only is the advisor going to sit you down and tell you the basics of investing that you need to get started but we've also got a new product which allows everybody really but especially those of you that are looking to just get started with investing even if you're investing tiny amounts like I was 25 pounds 50 pounds a month you can build your own portfolio assess your own risk and get started with investing right now using this product and if this product was around when I was started 10 years ago my life would have been a lot easier and I've dropped the link to that product in the show notes. There's also a link to a live webinar with live Q&A, which we did on investing recently. And uh, that's on our YouTube channel. And if you want to come on our next webinar and you're not already on our mailing list, which is up to 22,500 doctors now and growing really rapidly, then the easiest way to join our mailing list is to download the ebook. And I've again dropped the link to that in the show notes below. And in the ebook, we have a chapter on investing. And that chapter in the ebook takes you through the basics that you need to get started uh, with investing. Investing is also really personal and we talked about my reason for investing, uh, but yours might be different. You might be saving up for school fees, you might be trying to grow a house deposit. And you might also be sick of me banging on about the fact that because I'm largely in the 2015 scheme, as many of you will be, my retirement age is linked to state retirement age. So it's currently at 68. And if the government decides to raise that retirement age, it will be going up further. So I cannot see myself doing my current role as a GP at the age of 68 or beyond. Now, if you want to retire early, of course, you can take your pension early, but there's big reductions in that pension that are applied. 
So if you don't want to lose a large chunk of your pension when you retire early, then you're going to need an alternative income. And investing may be that income. But you have to start early. And we talk about why it's important to start early in the podcast. But essentially, compound interest is the reason. So we talk about what investing is and how it works. We talk about the pros and the cons of different strategies and different asset classes like stocks and shares and bonds. We talk about risk, which is an incredibly important subject and one that I know lots of doctors worry about. And finally, we unveil the new product. And remember, if you want to try the product, the link is in the description below and it's completely free to build your portfolio and have a look at the portfolio and play around with. And the fees, as you're going to hear, are really, really reasonable. Finally, when other doctors find that I'm into investing and I've done okay with investing. Lots of them ask me for share tips or should I buy the latest share that's being recommended in the finance section of the Sunday papers. And that is about the most worrying question that you can ask me about investing. Good investing does not involve buying individual shares, using share tips from the Sunday papers or trading in incredibly high risk assets. For me, good investing involves building a long-term, low-cost, well-diversified portfolio that's going to deliver the returns that I need and require minimal input for me. I don't have the time or the expertise to be trading shares on a daily basis because I'm working as a doctor. So if you tuned into this episode expecting share tips or the latest hype to buy shares, you're going to be really disappointed. But if that is what you think investing is, you really, really need to listen to this. Finally, we are talking about investing today. And I do need to read out the standard disclaimer that the value of your investments can go up and down, and you may get back less than you put in. And nothing that we say on this episode constitutes advice, you should always take your own advice specific to your individual circumstances. And Mike also reads out his own disclaimer during the podcast. Right, I've waffled on enough and hopefully you're all now as excited about investing as I am. So let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's Medics Money podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Harms from the Medical and General IFA, um, and we're going to be talking about investing. Um, For all our listeners, Mike, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and um, your firm? Absolutely. So um, as uh... Introduced, my name is Michael Holmes. I'm a director and chartered financial planner of Medical and General IFA. I founded Medical and General about six and a half years ago, and the aim is to be a truly holistic financial advice practice. Um, I've been providing financial advice for over 12 years. Ten of those years have been specialising in the medical profession. Our main mission is to support and educate our clients in the first instance, so you're able to make informed decisions about your life and feel empowered about your financial future. We're based in Devon. But we do provide advice to medics across the country and we're utilizing technology where possible to deliver all of the services and support to you guys as medical professionals. So based in Devon, there's one question that I have to ask you about cream teas. Do you go jam first or cream first? What's the situation 
in Devon? Uh, well, I'm originally from Kent, so I'm a, I'm an import to Devon, but I would normally go jam first, then cream. Wow. Um, okay, we'll talk about that later. That's totally, <laughs> totally the opposite. Um, okay. And the second thing, there's a bewildering array of uh, postnomials that uh, financial advisors have. Um, a bit like doctors in that sense. So you are a chartered financial planner. Can you tell me about that qualification, what it actually means? Absolutely. So uh, it basically means I'm at the pinnacle of career in terms of the amount of qualifications you can hold as a financial advisor. Uh, it ultimately means I've, I've trained and completed around about 21 exams over the 10 to 12 year time frame. And there are varying degrees of advisors out there. So you can have diploma qualified advisors, which is the bare minimum required to be a financial advisor in today's market. And then if you want to go on and specialize in certain areas, then you will move yourself towards a chartered financial planner. And that will involve things like uh, specializing in uh, final salary pensions, which is obviously one of the areas I specialize in, as well as tax and personal planning on that front. So um, ultimately, chartered is the, the highest level of qualification you can get. And there are, I believe, around about 5 to 10% of the advisor market that actually are chartered. Awesome. Uh, super nice explanation of what all those complicated letters after your name mean. I won't even begin to explain doctors' um, post-nomer qualifications because I don't think many people, even anyone, understands that. Okay, so today we are talking about something which I am super interested in, uh, and I know a lot of Medics Money listeners are as well, and that is investments. Now, investment is quite a catch-all broad term, and I imagine it covers quite a few things. So do you want to just give us an overview of what we mean when we say investments and what types of investments uh, we're going to be discussing today? Sure. So when we start talking to clients about investments, we try to take it back to basics because, as you quite rightly pointed out, it, it covers a multitude of areas it's a very, very broad term in investing, and it means lots of different things to different people. So in the first instance, we will always try to understand what it means and what your understanding is. And then we go through basically the different areas you can invest. So, for example, there are four main areas that you can invest in, and they're called asset classes. And, and they can they could uh, basically include cash, bonds, property and equities. So when we talk about cash, we're really talking here about money that's in your bank account, whether that's a savings account, whether it's your current account, premium bonds, any form of cash holding that you can access very, very quickly is seen as a, a cash asset class. Now, the one thing we need to be considering when we look at cash is the impact that inflation has on the value of cash. So if we look at what's just happened with COVID and the impact on interest rates, that have actually dropped even further than where they were and have been for the last 10 years, you can see that cash returns are extremely low with interest rates below half a percent, meaning that the return you're getting on your investment of cash is extremely low. So if we consider it like this, inflation, the target for inflation from the Bank of England is around 2%. And on average, over any 10-year time, time frame, we expect inflation to be around 2.5%. So if you're only receiving half a percent or 1% on the value of your cash savings, then the buying power of that money is eroding year on year. 
So the first thing that people think is that cash is a safe place to have your money. Now, in essence, it is because the capital value won't go down. But in real terms, the buying power is reducing because of the effect of inflation. So normally we would suggest you need to maintain a level of savings in cash, which we would classify as an emergency fund. And that's usually around three to six months worth of net income. And that gives you a safety net to make sure you feel comfortable in the event of any situation, you know, the car blows up, the roof leaks, one-off expenses that you need access to money that you've got the funds available for you to, to get hold of. We then move on to the other asset classes, which is bonds, property, and equities. So when we talk about bonds, most people have heard of a cash bond, a savings bond, and that's not what I'm talking about here. What we're talking about here are government bonds, otherwise known as gilts, and also corporate bonds. And you may have heard of gilts on the news. So certainly when you put on the news headlines and you hear about what's going on with the interest rates and, and gilts and the fact that there's quantitative easing and all these sorts of long terms out there that really make absolutely no sense to many people. But it all comes back to debt and debt of the government which is also known as a gilt. Now, it's called a gilt, and it, it harks back to the old days when you would receive a document that was gold-edged, gilt-edged, ultimately. And that is why they're called gilts today, and it, it's government borrowing. So the government will come out to the public pension funds, and they'll say, can we borrow X amount of money over a 5, 10, or 15-year time frame? And in return, we will guarantee you your original capital back so if you put £100 in, in 10 years' time, if that's the, the, the time frame you selected, you would receive £100 back. But also, in return for borrowing that money, we will provide you with a return, let's say 2.5%. And we will guarantee that 2.5% per year for 10 years. So in some respects, it feels like it works similar to a cash savings bond. But the big difference here is that bonds, gilts and corporate bonds are invested, bought and sold on the market. And what I mean by that is they are subject to movements in up and down value based on demand for those particular products. So bonds, gilts, form part of most investment portfolios. We then have corporate bonds, which is effectively the same thing. It's debt. But in, in this instance, it is companies that are looking to borrow that money from pension funds, from you, from the banks. And, and just to use an example, uh, one I've used for many, many years is Tesco want to build new stores. They don't have the money to do it. They need to borrow that money to, to put into big infrastructure projects. So they will come out and again, they will ask for the money over a fixed period of time. And in return, they will pay you a fixed return of money. Now, the fundamental difference between a guilt and a corporate bond is the amount of risk associated with them. The UK government and governments like Germany and, and other European countries are able to borrow money extremely cheaply because they are seen as extremely safe. So the chances of them not returning your money is very low. Put that into contrast, companies borrowing the money from you, they could become insolvent tomorrow. And we only need to look at some of the big retail giants out there, such as Debenhams and other, other companies like that, where we're starting to see cracks and they've been funded on debt. And now they're struggling because of the economic circumstances. 
So what you would expect to see is that corporate bonds will invariably give you a better return on your investment, but there is a greater degree of risk associated with them. And government debt will give you a far lower return on your investment, but they are seen as far safer. And bonds form a fairly large part of most portfolios. How much is included depends on how much risk you're prepared to take your money. And you said something pretty key there, I think, which is that um, the return, the higher the return in general, the higher the risk. Is that a fair summary of investing in general? It is. There are obviously exceptions to that. But in general, you have to accept the higher the return, the greater the risk. And what I mean by the greater the risk is the greater risk that you might lose some of your original investment value. Yeah. And um, your points about cash might be a bombshell to those of us uh, whose parents encouraged us to get piggy banks when we were children and uh, save all our cash in a piggy bank. Because what you're saying is that er inflation is effectively eroding the value of cash. Um, So, you know, cash right now is not a great investment, but has its role in an emergency fund. Is that an accurate kind of summary? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, we, we look at cash and, and the simple way of thinking about this is what you could buy today for £100, you, you wouldn't be able to buy in a year's time for £100. It would cost you more. Yeah. And actually, therefore, the value of your money isn't going as far 12 months later. Yeah, awesome. And um, you mentioned the emergency fund. Uh, that's a topic for another day. But I think uh, the COVID pandemic has shown, unfortunately, quite a few people uh, why you need an emergency fund, even doctors, uh, because I know a lot of people who are locuming or do private work, all of that's shut down. So, okay. Uh, so we talked about cash, we talked about bonds. Um, what other uh, investment classes are there? So there are two other investment classes, property and equities. Now, property, it's a fairly broad term, but the way I try to explain it is you, you, if you own your own home, many of you might, many of you might be working towards that, and that's possibly one reason why you're looking to invest over a period of time. But once you own your own property, you effectively have exposure to the property market. And bricks and mortar is tangible. It's something you can feel, you can see. And there are the old anecdotes, many, many years, that you will always see property value increase. Now, it might come as a surprise, but property is actually seen as relatively high risk. The reason why it's seen as high risk is not because it's a risk investing in property. It's the fact that it's illiquid. And what I mean by that is you cannot get hold of the money immediately. You can only get hold of that money once someone has bought it and paid you that money. I'm currently going through the process of moving house right now, and we're eight weeks in and still nowhere near finishing. So it just shows you, and that's just the trying to exchange contracts and move that forward. But, you know, trying to sell as well is is a really big factor. So property is is seen as as high risk purely due to its illiquity, uh, illiquid nature. Um, But you're obviously already having exposure to that. There are other ways you can have exposure to property within investments. And it might be you invest in commercial property directly, or you invest through funds, that then invest in property, or they track the property markets. We've seen as time's gone on, it's less beneficial to invest directly in property. So you'd be feeling quite sore right now if you were investing in some of the shopping centres and retail spaces and office spaces that are now seeing a crash in the number of occupants. So that probably highlights 
even greater just by properties seen as slightly higher risk. We then move on to equities, and this is probably how people have understood shares. So this could be stocks and shares. You, you own a share in a limited company. And as a result of that, you have voting rights. You get to pick and choose who the directors are. You get to influence what happens within that company. But equally, you get to benefit from the profits that are made within a company. And you also get to benefit from any growth in the value of that company. Just to give you an example, at the present time, Apple alone has a big, bigger market capitalization. What I mean by that is that they are worth more than the top 100 companies in the UK. That puts into context the value of Apple and they have increased their value within six months. They've doubled it from 1 trillion to 2 trillion, I think it is. So equities, you have greater risk, but you equally have greater reward. And that is where it is perceived that most of your growth and value will come from over a longer period of time. Awesome. Um, so that's an outline of the four main asset classes. So just to recap, cash, uh, bonds, which is made up of gilts and corporate bonds. So gilts are effectively from the government, corporate bonds we explained. We've got the property uh, and then we've got the equities and stocks and shares. Um, so that's like your four main options. And there's loads of other ones like commodities and precious metals. And uh, I don't want to offend you by saying cryptocurrency because I don't know what your views are on that. But so that, that those are the four main ones. We're not going to be going uh, deep into the woods on those other alternative asset classes uh, today. Um, but what I wanted to get into is, so somebody's listening to that uh, and thinking, you know, why would I want to invest? It's about long-term returns. And making your money work harder for you whilst accepting the risks that you're taking. And this all comes down to your attitude to risk, how you feel about potentially losing some of that money, and also your tolerance for losing some of that money. But what we can see is that pure cash at the moment, which has always been, as you brightly pointed out, saving in the piggy bank, that's the place to do it, keeping the money under the mattress, all of those old adages that we've been told over the years, just doesn't stack up in today's climate. And interest rates have been low now for 12 years. They're at a historic low. And we can't foresee them changing for quite some time. I can't put a time frame on that. That's really difficult to say. But it that's is crystal clear ball. To that's see. crystal ball territory, if you're going to tell me that. I'd really like to know <laughs> that information. <laughs> Indeed. Now, now, one thing I can say is that normally you see interest rates rise when inflation rises. Uh -huh. and, and they use interest rates as a tool and a mechanism to reduce inflation. Now, in, that's kind of been turned on its head over the last few years where we've seen inflation grow, but they haven't raised interest rates. That's purely to do with um, the precarious nature of our current climate and that that would put loads of home buyers into, into a really bad situation with their mortgage rates, amongst other things. But Ultimately, investing can give you, and it's been proven, and, and we always say, obviously, history is not a reliable guide to future performance. But when we do look back at that, and that's the only thing we really have to rely on, we can see over periods of time, successive, numerous times, investing will provide you with better returns over a long term. Now, the biggest issue we find is that people say, but I've lost money or we lose money. And, and 
we always come back and say, but you've only lost money if you take the money out at that point in time. So the one thing you really do need to understand when you're investing is you put £100 in on day one, it might be £90 tomorrow morning, but then the following day it could be £110. It is a bit of a roller coaster. How much of a roller coaster and how high you want those highs and lows will depend on how much risk you're prepared to take. And that will come down to lots of different things. So it's not just about risk. It's about the time frame you're looking over. Uh, you need to consider normally for investing for at least five years. And the rationale there is that if we see a, a market dip, your investments have time to recover before you need to access those funds. So let's take an example. We've had COVID, but you invested in January. You would have seen the market dip and we hit rock bottom just in April. We are now back to almost pre-COVID levels. There are lots of reasons behind that. I won't go into those right now, but the markets have recovered. So that dip is known as volatility. And volatility is seen as risk. So how much you see the dip depends on how much risk you're prepared to take. So I just mentioned you only lose money if you withdraw funds at a time when the markets are down. This is also another reason why you need to have a solid emergency fund in place. So you do not need to tap into these investments at the wrong time. You also need to consider that if you have any capital expenditure that you want to make within the next five years, that you don't invest that money because that money has a purpose. It has a need that you cannot risk on the open market. Yeah. So, I mean, these are the sorts of things that you would discuss um, with your clients when you're advising them on investments. Um, I mean, who, if it's possible to sort of break this down, who is investing appropriate for and what, you know, who, who's it right for? It's, it's right for most people who are willing to take a risk. And as I said, when we talk about risk, we talk about your attitude in generic terms to risk. So you might be a risk taker in your life. You know, you might feel that uh, rock climbing and all those other things are, are risks you're willing to take. And it's the same when you're looking at money. Are you prepared to, to a degree, gamble with your, your money? Um, and your, so your generic attitude to risk might be, well, look, I'm, I'm fairly adventurous. I like to take risk. I'm investing over 10-year time horizon. Brilliant. So in person, you feel like you have a high attitude to risk. We would then also look at whether you have the right capacity for loss. So capacity for losses, if you lost this money, would it impact your day-to-day -day living? Would it impact you achieving your goal? Now, for many of you who are, are working, you're, you're receiving a regular income, fairly recession-proof, it could be argued that you actually have quite high capacity for loss. Now, that will depend on your circumstances. And, and obviously, it really does come down to your personal situation as to what your capacity for loss is. And then we actually have the, the real key, which is your tolerance for loss. So whilst we might say we're adventurous, we're prepared to take risk, um, I've got the capacity for loss because I'm still earning money, your tolerance for loss, this is how you feel. So when you look at that, that graph and you see the markets have gone down and you see the value of your investments have dropped, how does that make you feel? And when we put it into pounds and pence, you know, you've, you've invested £10,000 and it's down to £8,000. How does that make you feel? What is that uh, internal conversation saying to you? Are you screaming inside saying, I want my money out because I can't take it anymore? In which case, clearly, you've taken too much risk. Or, or are you able to understand that this is part and parcel of investing and that as time goes on, that will likely recover? And hopefully, as this is a longer term objective, you will see it return, recover and improve. 
over a period of time. Yeah, and we're slightly laboring, or you are slightly laboring the point about risk, but I think um, it's absolutely fundamental to investing for the, all the reasons you talked about, because uh, your risk determines the kind of investments and portfolio that you ultimately take out. And if you get that right, uh, then you're going to, you know, you're going to be absolutely fine when investments drop. Uh, and if you get it wrong, you're going to buy high, sell low, and that is a recipe for disaster. So although we're going on about risk, um, it's absolutely fundamental part of uh, investing. Um, okay, so we know why we want to invest. And I really like what you said about uh, making your money work for you, because as doctors, you know, we are well paid, and we could just continue working for the rest of our lives at the NHS coalface and retire at 68 or whenever the government decrees we can retire and we'd be okay. But if you don't want to continue working until whenever the government decrees you're going to retire, um, then investing may be a way you know, for you to get through that. And we talked a bit earlier about other things that investments might allow you to do, you know, uh, other financial things. Um, so we talked about um, the different classes of um, investments. Um, now, here's a, a massive subject, uh, as well as risk, uh, the difference between passive investing and active investing. Absolutely. Now, um, just before we go on to that, if it's okay, I'd just like to go back to risk and how actually this can be advantageous for you. You just pointed out that you're all working hard, you're, you're earning reasonably you know, good money, and you want to save potentially on a regular basis. And there's something called pound cost averaging. I'm not sure if that's a term you, you've heard of at all. Um, but pound cost averaging is basically where you invest on a monthly basis and buy all, all as frequent or as little as you like, but the premise being it's a regular payment. Now, the advantage to this is that you are taking uh, basically advantage on any drops in the market because you are buying when shares are cheaper and the assets are cheaper to buy. And then as those assets return in value because the markets have recovered, you are benefiting from that uplift because you bought cheaper. So you could argue that you can never time the market. That is one thing to say. It, it is a, um, a cheesy line, but it is time in the market rather than timing the market. And that is absolutely true. But what you can do is take advantage of the highs and the lows as we go through. So for any regular saving, uh, that is a really big key. Rather than putting a lump in on day one, seeing it potentially go down, regularly saving, you can probably console yourself with the fact that Yes, you might have seen a drop in your investments, but you will benefit on the, the upside dramatically from that. Yeah, really good point. So pound cost averaging or dollar cost averaging, as our cousins across the pond like to call it, is one of many ways that you can mitigate investment risk, basically. And there's loads of others. And you've written a really good article, which is on the Medics Money website about all this. So um, yeah, that's a really good point. So should we, should we move on to the uh, passive versus active investments? Yes, absolutely. So uh, this is a raging debate within our our community, uh, and, and it will always rage on because it comes down to what is better for you and what's the difference between what we call as passive investing and active investing. So the, the easiest way to describe this is probably in its purest form at a fund level. Um, and when we construct a portfolio, uh, and what I mean by a portfolio is you know a combination of bonds, equities, and property we can select just passive funds or we can select active funds or a combination of the two known as a blended or a hybrid solution. So passive investing is when you are buying what we would classify an index. And, and we could, for example, use the FTSE 100 as an index. Hopefully everyone's familiar with that. 
you're trying to replicate the index and just follow the highs and the lows. So if the markets go up by 20%, those top 100 companies value increase by 20%, your investments will go up by roughly 20%. If they drop, then equally you will see that drop. So you're not trying to improve, you're not trying to make a judgment call, you are literally saying to yourself, the markets are efficient, there is no gain to make from this, so we will just follow the highs and lows that come with the market. So what you will do in the example of the FTSE 100 is you will own an element of each company based on what percentage share they make up of that FTSE 100, based on what we call market capitalization, which is their value. And there is no um, there is no thought by a fund manager. It is literally you will follow that high and low. But, but what that actually does is provides a very, very cheap and cost-effective way of investing. We then move on to active investing. And this is where you're employing an individual or a, a group of, of fund managers. Uh, and they will invest in companies based on research and independent assessment of those companies, essentially trying to find the most attractive investments for you. So generally speaking, most active fund managers aim to beat the market or outperform a benchmark. And the premise behind this is that human intervention should be able to seek out opportunities that cannot be considered when passively investing. Now, the difference here ultimately is cost. Because passive investing is cheaper than active investing as you're buying and selling less and you're also not paying for those research costs and the fund manager to make the decisions on your behalf. But as I said at the beginning, there is a continued debate around passive versus active and whether the increased costs associated with active investing offsets the potential gains that could be made by using actively invested funds. So there's numerous things we've touched on in, in this podcast already, but this is a debate that would be a podcast in itself. Um, in my experience, there's no right or wrong way to answer this, and it mainly comes down to what your objective is and what you're trying to achieve. So. If someone was coming to us and they were looking to retire, then we might be considering possibly more active than passive, or equally someone who's looking for a low-cost solution, then probably passive is going to be more appropriate for them. But there are pluses and minuses to all of these different types of investing. So in essence, you know, earlier we covered off the different asset classes and the types of risk and the amount of risk you can take usually determines what is known as the asset allocation. So in essence, this is how much of each asset class is included in your portfolio. So for example, if you're a medium risk investor, it could be appropriate to hold up to 60% of your portfolio in equities and up to 40% in a combination of property bonds and actually an element of cash sometimes. And that allows the, the manager to make decisions and move quickly in and out of markets. The portfolio manager will make the decision as to how much goes into each area based on their view of the market, and that's called a strategic asset allocation. They will decide how much goes into the US, UK, Europe, etc. So perhaps they might have 30% in the US, 20% in the UK, so on and so forth. Now, at the moment, it's quite interesting because there's a view that the UK is not going to do too well over the next six months. So is there a move away from the UK? moving more investments into the US and European countries. And we've certainly seen over the last five years, the UK exposure has diminished, where once upon a time, that was very much a big part of a medium risk portfolio. 
Awesome. Um, and I think we did define it earlier when we were talking about stocks and shares and equities. But just in case we didn't, um, we're talking about funds. Do you want to give us a quick definition of what a fund is? Because we're not talking about buying individual stocks and shares here, quite the opposite. Absolutely. So what we call a fund is, is something called a collective investment scheme. And you may have come across the term called unit trust or a term called an OIC, which is an O-E-I-C. Now, ultimately, a fund is where a fund manager or a company, and we could, for example, use Invesco or a another, and what they've done is they've created a UK fund. And in that fund, they will invest in many, many different companies on your behalf. And they won't just be investing for you. They will be investing with pension funds and lots of other people around the UK. So you are collectively investing, which gives you discounted rates by investing through a fund. You are taking advantage, potentially, if it's an active fund, of the portfolio manager's view on the markets, and they will be buying and selling companies. But by investing in a fund, you buy more companies, you then diversify your portfolio. And that's a word we haven't spoken about so far, but diversification is absolutely critical to getting good, reasonable, consistent returns on your investment. And they will make sure you do that by diversifying across lots of companies. And the rationale behind that is if Debenhams go bust, but Apple are doing well, you'd be glad that you've got a foot in each company rather than all of it in Debenhams potentially. And so divers- that is the rationale behind it. Yeah. So diversification, is, is this correct, my understanding, that that would be a way to effectively mitigate risk because you haven't got all your eggs in one uh, Debenhams-shaped basket. You've got a bit in Debenhams, you've got a bit in Apple, uh, hopefully a bit in Amazon, and, and that's a way to mitigate the risk by just uh, spreading your eggs around. It is, and it's also what assets you have it in. So if you have some in bonds, then normally what you find is that when markets don't do do too well in equities, you will see that bonds have actually done a bit better because it's a a safer place to go. Uh, Talking about commodities earlier, you start to see things like gold go through the roof when the markets go down, but equally the opposite happens when the markets return. So um, that's why commodities aren't always a very good place to, to be investing. Yeah. So just to check that I've got this right, because the active versus passive is absolutely critical. So passive essentially just tracks an index without any input from a fund manager making decisions. And the benefit of that is it's low cost. And then active is where a fund manager actively seeks to buy the right things uh, to make more money for you. And as crazy as it sounds, simply tracking the index using passive may, may, um, be a good option for some investors because if you can match the returns of the index uh, and the index goes up, then you're happy days. Have I got that right? You have, but there's an extra element in here, which is a portfolio manager. So what we look at is if you just, as I said, in its purest form, a fund that's a passive fund tracks the market. But what you will have is an individual above that called a portfolio manager who will say, right, we are going to um, tactically put more in bonds as a tracker versus equities, because we believe that gives better return under the current economics circumstances and political circumstances. And it might be, okay, we're going to invest in corporate bonds in the United States rather than corporate bonds in the UK. So so there is an element of involvement still from an active standpoint. So what we say is it's it's a passive portfolio with an active overlay. And that just means there is an active manager who is kind of pulling the strings as to where that money goes. But we are using instruments, i.e. tracking indexes, to give you the desired outcomes based on the risk. 
Awesome. Um, so if um, someone's listening to this, a doctor, and uh, they're looking to get started for an investment, um, is there a single best way to go about it or does it depend on your circumstances? I think it really does depend on your circumstances. If you're looking to invest an amount on a regular basis and your goal is just to save funds over a period of five to 10 years, then you might find initial costs associated with advice relatively high. Um, I'm sure you can appreciate when I talk about professional indemnity costs and things like that and, and regulatory costs, uh, they're quite high in our industry as, as they have been notoriously in yours for, for some time, less so now, but um, certainly in the past. And what that means is that it doesn't matter how much you're, you're proposing to invest, we still have basic minimum costs, which could mean that if you're looking to just invest on, say, £500 per month, uh, the process for that will be exactly the same as if you wanted to invest a lump sum of £50,000. So that means it can sometimes be perceived as quite expensive to gain advice on investing for smaller lumps and smaller sums of money. Um, if you do have lump sums to invest, then in my opinion, it's essential to gain advice and accept that there are going to be costs associated with that. And, and the reason that is, is because there are numerous ways to save tax, support your client, or, you know, support you guys with uh, investing uh, various different pots and various different options that meet your objectives. And that's really difficult to achieve if you've got a lump sum and don't really know where to place it. Um, but what we've seen is that there has been a real disconnect between sort of individuals who have access to advice when just starting out with investing and that there's a real lack of support in this area. Um, the phrase advice gap has been coined to describe that disconnect. And, and ultimately, the banks used to provide an element of this bridging of gap, uh, but, but they've all moved out of this market. So options are very limited. Yeah, so I think that's um, this is really exciting for me because everyone's got to start somewhere, but it's really hard to get started because of this advice gap uh, for the reasons that you've just mentioned. So if you're just looking to put away, you know, fifty or hundred pounds a month, that is a great place to start. And over time, uh, especially if you're starting young, chances are you're going to do very nicely. But where do you get started? And that's what the advice gap is. Um, and so. I think that you have a potential solution to this advice gap. Can you give us some more info about this? Yeah. So as I just mentioned, we, we are independent advisors. We support all medics at every stage of their career, whether it's starting out through to retiring and inheritance tax planning. And there's a need in absolutely every aspect. Saving on a regular basis is absolutely essential because you, you get the compound effect. And that cannot be underestimated, the impact of compounding on your returns. Um, so what we've realized is just through working with Medics Money and having a number of different links through from our, our recent blog post is that there are a huge number out there who want to invest on a regular basis. As I said, without saving for for, for a house deposit, whether that is, is saving for retirement or, or a rainy day, you all need somewhere to go to start. So what we've created is another part of the business that is uh, Medical and General Investing Direct. It's basically a restricted proposition, which means that we have partnered with a portfolio manager called Parminian. They're based in Bristol and they're actually part of Standard Life uh, as a parent company. So they've got some pedigree there and they've been around for many years. 
And what they've done is, uh, in conjunction with us, is create a solution to support medics in investing for the first time. Or, as I've said before, medics seeking a new home, some of their savings and investments, and want to know there is someone at the end of a phone if you need to chat about your investments. So what we've created is, in essence, a, a robo-advice service. And what we mean by this is it's a process you can go through online and should be intuitive, takes you through, asks you the questions. Hopefully, lots of things we've talked about today will flag up about capacity for loss and attitude to risk. And it will all start to feel like it's familiar and you understand it, which is the ultimate aim for everything we do here. And um, we, we basically created five risk-rated portfolios, one being low risk, five being high risk. And in, in order to make this affordable, we've ensured that the portfolios are investing in passive funds only and that the total costs, including the advice charge, which is part and parcel of the service, is below 1% per annum. Wow. So one of the That's... biggest thing... Sorry. That's, that's very, very, um, that's very competitive. It is. I mean, there's, there's obviously a, a huge difference between that and, and a more active uh, independent service with active managers involved. But I, I felt it was key to try and give something that is good value, that you can basically reduce as a barrier to investing and just makes you feel more comfortable with feeling like you're getting value for money. Yep. So just as an example, it means if the value of your investments were £5,000, your total cost for the year would be around £50. So again, hopefully, you would see that as a, a good value proposition. I mean, yeah, it seems incredible value. And that 1%, does that include any platform costs as well or the platform costs uh, added onto that? No, it's absolutely everything. So there is the platform cost. Uh, so that is for Parminion to basically buy and sell the various different funds. It is for their portfolio management for them to assess where they think you should invest your money in, in bonds, equities, those sorts of things, and how much. And then it's also our advice fee, which is to make sure that this remains a suitable product for you year on year. And ultimately, we, we're prepared to, to be there for a phone call and have a conversation, and we have obligations for you year on year to make sure this continues to be appropriate for you. Yeah, wow. So it's total costs are 1%. I mean, that's very competitive. Okay. That, that's top level. It, it's probably going to be less than that, but but we've capped it at 1%, so it will never go above that. Okay. So how have you managed to do this um, at such a reasonable cost? Okay. So this comes into the difference between an independent advisor and a restricted advisor. So First things first, we are predominantly a, an independent advisory firm, which means that we search the whole of the market and provide the most appropriate investment solutions and vehicles to you based on your circumstances. The restricted proposition, and by restricting our proposition, it's allowed us to deliver a lower cost solution. It basically means we only provide advice on the Parmenian portfolios and for a restricted range of products. So what I mean by a restricted pro proposition you can only have access to ISAs and what is called a non-ISA account, which is also known as a general investment account. So you can't access things like pensions. You can't access things like venture capital trusts for tax planning and any other types of investing. So it's a, it's a very restricted and limited way of investing, but it is using one of the most tax efficient vehicles you can use, which is an ISA. So the aim for me is to allow medics to basically begin on the investment journey. And as time goes on and your needs change as you move through your careers, that you might decide to become a client of 
the independent arm, or you might see the value and the need to move your investments into a slightly different space and take advantage of advice around tax planning and, and other bits and pieces as well. So um, always happy to have a chat, always happy to discuss things uh, and talk through your individual circumstances. So if you're unsure which proposition would work best for you, feel free to pick the phone up. We're always here to have a chat. Yeah, awesome. I mean, that was a super quick run through of a really complicated uh, topic. And um, the uh, robo advice from Parmian um, looks like a great way to uh, bridge the advice gap. Uh, so that's super exciting uh, for those just looking to dip their toe into the water of investments. We've also got a lot more articles on our website on the blog uh, about investments. Um, so just to wrap up, um, any parting words of wisdom for people that are thinking about you know, investments uh, and uh, everything that we've talked about today? I think the biggest piece of advice I can give you is just to start. Start small if you feel uncomfortable with the idea of investing. So, you know, you start with a minimum, say, 50 to 100 pounds a month, something like that. And then just as you get more comfortable with what's happening, you will see the highs and the lows as you go along. You might feel more comfortable with taking more investment risk. So normally and naturally what you see is that uh, initially investing is quite a scary proposition. But then after two or three years, it just becomes something that you're comfortable with and you're aware of in the background, but it's not causing you sleepless nights. Uh, but getting started is the main thing. And, and you will benefit over the long term with compound growth. Yeah, I mean, compounding is a massive, uh, massive subject in itself. And uh, every single point that we've mentioned today could be a hour or two long podcast on itself. But thanks so much for that super quick overview of investing. Um, and I'll drop the link to the, um, the software that Mike uh, mentioned. Um, because uh, I've had a play with it and uh, it was really interesting actually uh, because it makes you a portfolio at the end and then I compared it to what investments uh, I'm currently holding and uh, there was quite a bit of similarity in there which was really really interesting for me so I'm really excited by it and uh, I love the way that it just makes a portfolio uh, for you at the end based on all of your um, questions so I'll drop the link in the um, the show notes and Thank you so much for your time today, Mike, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again on one of our webinars or writing some blogs for us or back on the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care.